0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the challenge of mental illness in British Columbia, drug addiction. We've been focusing a lot on this on the show uh, lately. Yesterday... Dueling announcements from the government and also from the opposition here in B.C. The government announced uh, some new measures for youth mental health. But then Kevin Falcon, the leader of the Liberal Party, leader of the opposition, did them one better, announcing a, a massive expansion of mental health and addiction treatment in British Columbia. Have a listen to what he had to say yesterday.
1: We're going to commit to building an accessible, no-cost, recovery oriented system of care for anyone
0: struggling with addiction issues okay let's discuss now with my guest liberal mla eleanor Sturco from surrey south eleanor is a former surrey rcmp officer very pleased to welcome her back eleanor thank you for coming on today
2: i'm very happy to be here today mike thanks
0: okay let's talk about this program here because we're talking about a lot of money in a very am- ambitious program what are the highlights here
2: Well, I think first and foremost, just like Kevin said there, I think the greatest highlight is that it will not uh, be a financial barrier for anyone in British Columbia who needs help, whether it's your mental health or whether it's addictions, accessible and available treatment for um, all British Columbians. So I think that's one of the most exciting parts about this plan is that, When people need help, that they'll be able to to get it. So other things include, you know, having more help in the regions and particularly for youth and families. I think um, having just a completely centralized um, system where people may have to leave their homes, their support systems, um, switching over and moving that where we would see an expansion of the model that we have here in the Lower Mainland, which is started under the BC Liberals, the Red Fish Recovery Center tripling that here and then having um, that model move out to the regions. I think it's going to be a wonderful opportunity for people to get well and to get well um, with their support systems around oh, them. So it's okay. really exciting.
0: Talking about the cost there that you mentioned, user fees, what kind of user fees do people experience now? I mean, if they can find care for mental health, mental illness, drug addiction, if they can get into some kind of program, there, people are paying a lot of money for it?
2: Well, it depends on you know where you are in your income bracket. So people who right now are on uh, forms of social assistance may qualify for programs that are of no cost to them whatsoever now. But And those who have a lot of income um, can, of course, afford to pay for private treatment. Some people have insurance programs so that if there is a cost, their insurance may cover that. But for a lot of British Columbians, there is a cost associated um, to going particularly into um, a private system or fees that they would have to pay even through um, going through the, the health authorities. But what's important about this is that it removes that barrier particularly when we're talking about one of the largest demographics that's affected people sort of in that middle income range where they wouldn't necessarily, you make, you make enough money to survive, but you know, who has an extra 30 or $40,000 just sitting around in case someone in their family needs help. It shouldn't, finances shouldn't be a barrier. And that's the thing that I think is, is, is really important here. You know, we've talked a lot this week, you and I, and, and uh, other people about decriminalization, removing the stigma, um, trying to encourage people to receive help and to reach out. But it doesn't matter if you reach out if you can't access help, if it's not either available to you or you just can't afford it. It's a huge failure, and this eliminates that.
0: When we look back at the decisions to shut down Riverview, and you mentioned the facility that's on that site now that would be expanded under, under this plan, but shutting down a large institution like Riverview, I mean, it was a previous Liberal government that shut it down, Do you think that was a mistake?
2: You know, absolutely, I would say that. And and this is something that Kevin actually said yesterday, is that, you know, for about 40 years, these kinds of movements, not just here in Canada, but you know, even into the United States, other jurisdictions, there was a shift away from institutionalized care. There was a lot of, um, you know, advice at the time that moving to community-oriented programs was the way to go. But through successive governments, the supports that people would need in order to have that sort of deinstitutionalization, it, they never happened. Those supports weren't put in place, uh, whether it was through, um, you know, not anticipating what the needs would actually be, not understanding what some of the consequences of things like the introduction, really, of um, like crystal meth into, um, you know, the drug supply. And then, of course, fentanyl, um, oxycodone, they had huge impacts on what happened after that. But I think it's never, you know, this is what Kevin said, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And I think that, you know, keeping on doing the same thing that we've done over and over, which is precisely what the NDP is doing now, they just were doubling down. We see them even yesterday in their announcement. It's not really a shift in doing anything different or trying a new approach. It's what, just more of the same.
0: What if someone is mentally ill, addicted to drugs, potentially both, and do not want to go into treatment? This is where we get into a situation of, do you force someone into treatment? Do you, do you go with involuntary care, which some groups have spoken out against? There have been civil liberties groups that have spoken out about this, Pivot Legal in Vancouver, Raising concerns about this, the BC Green Party about forcing people into treatment. Let me play a clip here of, of Kevin Falcon, the Liberal leader, speaking on this point yesterday. Then I'll get your thoughts. So here's Falcon yesterday. It's a smaller group. It's a,
1: a very much a smaller subset, but there are some folks that I believe we have a moral
0: obligation as society to help people that are incapable at that moment of having the agency to help themselves. Eleanor, do you think there are people? on the street right now, and I mean, you had a front row seat as a police officer who are mentally ill, addicted to drugs, who should be forced into treatment, into involuntary care?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, and it's not as simple as often, you know, it's made sound when we talk about it in the media, because the reality is it's not just about someone having an addiction or or a mental health issue and then not wanting to go and, and them being forced. It's about someone who is at risk to themselves or others. and um, Or, for example, uh, in my experience on the street, I've seen people who are suffering from absolutely horrendous wounds, people with prolapsed rectums, bleeding to death on the street. Um, This person is not making a healthy choice. I've seen people suffering from alcoholism, you know, who, well, this is disgusting, but, you know, with with maggot-infested wounds, this person needs to be brought into care f- because that's that's cruel not to. So we're not talking about someone who who is able to make day-to-day decisions but they don't want treatment and suddenly they're being grounded up and, and forced into care. We're talking about very, very sick people who have, um, you know, perhaps as a result of a mental illness or an addiction are actually suffering and either are going to hurt themselves, um, are, are suffering from, you know, tremendously awful um, wounds and and, and sickness as a result, you know, secondarily to their um, illness that they already have, their mental health or addictions issue. Um, And and they need our help in order to be stabilized so that they can make decisions. It's not about arbitrarily detaining people and and forcing them into treatment, but there are people who are very sick. um, And that's the reality is that some people, it, it would just be simply too cruel for us not to care for them.
0: Speaking of liberal MLA Eleanor Sturco, we're talking about the, the promised expansion of mental health services here in British Columbia. When you talk to families, people who are looking for help, maybe for a child, a loved one, a spouse, and they, and they can't get it. Like I've talked to people who are desperate for mental health services, addiction treatment, detox, recovery, some sort of treatment, and they can't get it. Like I was quite stunned this week when The British Columbia's coroner, Lisa LaPointe, was talking about the gaps in our system. And she said, talking about drug treatment beds in B.C., and she said, we don't actually know where those beds are. We don't know how what it means to have a a bed that's funded. We don't measure the outcomes of the people who go through these programs. There are no measurables on how people are doing when they're treated in these programs. There's no public waiting lists issued. Why? What, what, what do you think of that?
2: I think that's terrible. I think that uh, that's exactly why Kevin's plan makes sense. You know, we will be putting in place um, these measurables. It's not just about counting the number of people that died. That's, this is awful. We need to find out how people get well, because I can tell you that thousands of people have gotten well We went yesterday uh, with Kevin and Shirley Bond. We went and actually spoke to some alumni who shared their stories. And and some of them were, you know, we spoke to one woman who had been living in a tent city. She was in psychosis a number of times and then was able to reach out. And then luckily for her, she was contacted by Westminster House and was able to get in and, and begin her pathway to recovery. But you know, it's not knowing where the beds are is unacceptable. Yeah. We shouldn't have empty beds and and people dying on waiting lists. It's just it's unethical.
0: We're we're following it very closely, to say the least. Thank you very much for coming on today to talk about it.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime.
0: talk about electric vehicles now do you drive one are they worth it they're kind of tough to get they're expensive you want to get a new one you're looking at long wait time i've heard i got a buddy of mine trying to buy a toyota hybrid he was told you had a two-year wait two-year wait to buy a toyota hybrid for the model that he wanted our family's thinking about going for it i mean why not right skip the gas pump but here's the deal now on this in canada We have very aggressive and ambitious targets to go to 100% electric. Right now, I think electric vehicle sales in Canada are running around 5%. like It's higher in British Columbia. But across the country, that's what you're looking at. And now we want to go 100% electric vehicles? Have a listen to Trudeau here talking about this. This is Justin Trudeau speaking recently in British Columbia about hitting these EV targets. We're moving forward with specific
3: targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in, uh, in 2026, 60% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. And with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it, would surprise, it wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time.
0: Talk about a doubling down there. He's saying he could maybe even beat these targets. I'm not sure we can meet them at all. I mean, 20% in just the next three years? I'm not sure that's possible. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Heather Exner-Perot, Senior Fellow, Director of Natural Resources at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. And I'm very pleased to welcome Heather to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. I appreciate you being here. So when we listen to some of these targets here, I mean, these are aggressive ambitious targets i've talked to people in the industry who are just kind of rolling their eyes at these targets saying it's not possible what do you think
1: well i agree and you know i'm in the same situation where i have a daughter turning 16 and and would like to not have to pay her gas but like a lot of people when you go to the dealer um you're looking at one or two year wait times um so there doesn't seem to be the supply to meet that obviously we've had supply chain crunches since covid um things are made worse by the the war in ukraine and for me, the way I look at it is is especially the infrastructure and the and the mineral requirements. Um, so I have nothing against, you know, no one wants to pay more gas at the pump, so I think we'd all be happy to have zero-emission vehicles. But the mineral requirements of an electric vehicle is about six times that of a regular internal combustion engine. Um, and so so that's the EVs. And then at the same time, you have to build up much more energy infrastructure, which takes a lot of copper. And copper is one that is being used, you know, and, and also we want to, you know, have a renewable grid, which is another target of the government by 20, you know, having some by 20 30, thirty-five um uh, very ambitious targets. So that is taking more mineral requirements. And that's just Canada. That's just 40 million wow. people out of 8 billion. And of course Europe wants to do solar, wind, electric vehicles, transmission, electrify everything. There are not enough mines in the world today. There aren't there are, you know, there's not even it's an order of magnitude more of the mines and the minerals that we would need to achieve all these goals everywhere.
0: Right. So these are the minerals we're talking about that you need to dig up out of the earth in order to make all these batteries, right?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, especially so the the energy transition minerals that we talk about generally are copper, um, which is a big one, but also graphite, cobalt, lithium, manganese. People have been hearing about those nickel um, and and first of all, you know, we, we, are, we are not, you know, we need five or six or seven, depending on on the forecast, more of that mining for the energy transition, let alone digital infrastructure, let alone replacing aging infrastructure we already have. Yeah. Uh, but it gets even worse because, you know, China is basically processing, in, in many cases, more than half or up to 80% of those metals that we need. So just as we're also trying to get off the lines of China and Russia, um, you know, we're kind of sailing right into more dependence on them for all these things.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of a, a concerning thought, especially when you consider some of the environmental standards around the world for digging this stuff up out of the ground. People may be aware of some of the concerns that have been highlighted around like cobalt mining, for example, around the world in the developing world. I mean, it's a, it is nightmarish digging up some of these, some of these, uh, these, these minerals. There's an environmental impact from that too, right?
1: I mean, there's a tremendous, and, and, you know, we all rely on mining. So, you know, we had to accept some environmental impact of our lifestyles. Um, so I don't want to, you know, crash on mining here, but it is the fact that we have far, far higher ESG, you know, standards in Canada. And and what we're doing is relying on, on places that have far lower standards, which is what makes them cheaper, which is what, you know, yeah. allows us to. To afford electric vehicles, so everyone's becoming very aware of kind of the you know the child slavery issues in in, in Congo um, with the cobalt, and then again the you know the 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 monopoly that China has on processing these things. And processing is a dirty business. You know it takes a lot of uh, you know chemicals and, and water and that kind of thing. Um, and and we're trying to friend shore, but there's a lot of appetite in North America to do those dirty jobs.
0: Right. I, I spoke about these issues recently with Flavio Volpe, who is the, the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association in Canada. And his people are like, Hey, we would love to build all these electric vehicles, you know, and you bring it on here. But then when you ask him about these targets though, these deadlines, these timelines, he is, he's very dubious. So let me play a clip here for you, for your thoughts, Heather. So here he is talking to me about, do we even have enough charging infrastructure? Do, first of all, do we have enough electricity in our grid to power all these electric vehicles? But then where are you supposed to plug all these vehicles in? So I asked him about that, the lack of charging infrastructure in Canada. Here's what he had to say to me.
4: Think about the car that they have and where they get their gas. Picture the last time you got gas or you were at a gas station last time you saw one. If all of those cars are electric cars, look around. Think about the last time you saw an electric charger. Uh, or a bank of chargers and the eye test never mind if i give
0: you the numbers the eye test fails immediately the i test right which is i guess another way to say in like common sense people looking around and then you yeah. look at these government targets like is this i don't think this is possible and you've got the federal government here now promise promising to inflict like penalties on companies if they don't meet the targets right
1: it's not possible and i yeah. feel like maybe they put the there are so many headwinds. First is is the minerals, the raw material. Next is the processing. Next is the is the supply chain to get these things from other countries into Canada. And next is our own labor force and our own infrastructure. Our you know our own our, you know because they have simultaneous goals of trying to get our natural gas and coal, which is fine, but we'll be putting all of that effort, all that labor, all that supply chain into displacing natural gas and coal just to get to where we are today in terms of power generation. So, you know, you can call them, be generous and say it's ambitious, but for most people who are looking at this seriously, it's just unrealistic.
0: Yeah. Like when I was speaking to Flavio Volpe about that, he said, look, you might as well, you might as well charge these companies these penalties now because they're not going to meet these targets. You know, And here, here's another thing he said to me. He, this is how confident he is that Canada will not meet, might meet this agenda, meet these targets. And here's what he said. This was his prediction to me on an earlier show. Have a listen to this. It's not there yet. There's a lot of thoughtful work that needs to be done. But um,
4: 2026 is three years from now. And if we get to, uh, on a national level, to uh, halfway to the targets set by the government, I'll buy everybody who's listening their own electric vehicle.
0: Okay. So save that tape. So if we don't, if we don't hit the target in the next three years, Flavio is the head of the Auto Manu- Auto Parts Manufacturers Association in Canada. He's going to buy every listener an electric vehicle. This is how confident yes. he is. And that's not talking about 100% electric vehicles. That's the 20% target just a few years from now. He doesn't think we can hit that.
1: No, I mean, we can't. And and to clarify, I think the government's target is zero emissions vehicles. And even Trudeau in your clip there said electric vehicles. And there is some difference between, for example, your Rav Four hybrid and your and your Tesla. And there are far fewer mineral requirements for that hybrid. And Honda actually just came up with a motor today, or was you know released this week. I saw it in the news today um, of a of a hydrogen. Hybrid motor, hydrogen electric, and they have a lot fewer mineral inputs and the price of mineral. I think one thing people don't appreciate is that we are living on a low commodities prices, a boom that we got from a lot of investment in 2008, 2010, 2012. But we have not been investing in minerals and in mines for a decade. Uh, in fact, a lot of miners lost money in the last decade. So we are even underwater on mineral requirements for what we use today. We're, we're still enjoying the benefits of, of spending from 10 years ago. And let alone the five or six or seven times more than we need to, you know, we're still at 30% below the peak of investment in 2012. Um, mm-hmm. So there is, there's no facet of the, of the supply chain that is going to work to meet these targets. And, and I, you know, well, I don't know why they, you know, keep trying to get slight otherwise. There are things you can do, things we should be doing, but let's be realistic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just heard that in that Trudeau clip that he says, well, he doesn't think he can. He says that they can not only meet the targets, but he thinks they'll get there earlier. They'll get, they'll hit the targets even ahead of time, which I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I've talked to a lot of people who are not buying that at all. So, you know, let's say these targets are not successful. What would be a better way forward? I mean, you got a government that's committed to reducing our emissions in Canada, you know, through greenhouse gas reduction uh, emissions. You, uh, the opposition has talked, if you believe them, you know, the conservatives say that they, they want to bring in an, uh, a climate change program as well. So everybody wants to I think everyone can agree like transitioning to electric vehicles is is a good thing, right? A lot of people want these electric vehicles. But if these if these deadlines are like pie in the sky, what's a better way to go forward, do you think?
1: I mean this might be unpopular, but from an economic economist standpoint, a carbon tax if you put a carbon tax and a tax on carbon, which is the thing that you want to get rid of, then the market will figure out the most efficient ways, you know, to get rid of that carbon. You know, so that an icy vehicle maybe is, is, you know, $10,000 more than an actual vehicle because of the carbon. Uh, and, but not having, not having these, you know, mandates of very specific things, clean fuel standard where you have to, you know, integrate biofuels or having electric vehicles 20% by 26 these very specific targets that the market is not prepared for. The labor force is not prepared for the supply chain is not prepared for. So you know, if we thought a carbon tax worked, then use the carbon tax and let everyone else figure it out based on the carbon tax. Instead, we're seeing kind of this micromanagement and it creates a lot of unintended consequences.
0: Heather, thank you for your time today. I appreciate your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me.
0: All right, let's talk about the continuing grim toll of toxic drug overdoses in our province now. This week, we got the number for 2022. This was reported out by BC's chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe. 2,272 people died of suspected drug toxicity last year. That is just a little bit short. That's almost the annual record. It's the second highest annual total on record. I've got Dr. Paxton Bach standing by to discuss. First have a listen to the coroner here talking about where this is being experienced in our province.
5: BC has experienced an average of six deaths every day of every week for two years due to toxic drugs and these deaths were preventable. All parts of our province are experiencing the impacts of the toxic drug crisis
0: BC Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe speaking this week. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Paxton Bach, UBC addictions expert, co-medical director, BC Centre for Substance Use, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Bach, thank you for coming on today. Thanks
3: for having me, Mike.
0: Okay, I appreciate you being here, and you were at the news conference with the coroner this week. And what goes through your mind? Like we hear, we keep hearing these these numbers, and when you hear it broken down on a daily basis, there are six per day. I think that drives it home even in more in even clearer fashion. But you know, what goes through your mind as someone who's on the front lines of this and watching this happen every day?
3: It's it's just devastating. It's uh, every year um, we 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 know this day is coming where where we where we where we see these numbers laid out, and it feels so absurd to be here year after year seeing just this extraordinary volume of death and, and, and no significant change, no, no real reason to be optimistic at this point that anything's going to change.
0: Yeah, when you describe it as absurd, why do, you, why do you use that word? Like, we heard the coroner there talk about these are preventable deaths, right? Is that why it's absurd? And
3: and that's just it. This is the the just to put it in perspective, and and, and our chief corner uh, framed it very well. Is that this is a provincial problem. There is no there's no corner of a province that's not being touched by this crisis. There's no industry in our province that's not being affected by this crisis. There's no there's no socioeconomic class. There's no group anywhere in the province of BC who's not being touched by by this wave of overdose deaths. And and while we continue to see this year after year, we're, we're just not seeing the level of, of, of outrage, um, the level of, of public pressure, the level of response um, at, at, at any, at, at, from any sector that's commensurate with the amount of, of damage that's happening. And year after year, we find ourselves back at that podium talking about another six people dying every day, six yeah. families losing somebody every day
0: yeah like when you describe it about the, you know how this affects a a multiple sort of stratas across the across the province, different sort of every walk of life here every part of the province being touched by this, do you think that that's commonly known among among the public or do you th- do you think there maybe there's a perception by some people that this is a downtown east Side problem mm-hmm. of people who are like hardcore addicts you know doing drugs in alleys, and these are you know quite often they're people who just make a mistake and take a drug that they they don't realize is dangerous, right?
3: And, and, and I mean, that's just it. And first off, I'll say that, that even if this was limited to, to the downtown east side or to people who are extremely impoverished or, invul- or vulnerable, it's still six human lives being lost every day. Yeah. But but the reality is, is is this is extending across every sector of the province. It, it's touching everybody. There are very few people, you know, seven years into this crisis, there are very few people that you will meet when you start having this conversation with them, that don't know somebody who's lost somebody. Yeah. And, and, if you, and, if, and if you don't know somebody, you will, unless we, unless we start making significant changes in our approach.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about, um, I thought you, you raised some really fascinating points at the news conference this week about our system of care and treatment. So for people who are looking, looking for help, it's maybe themselves or a loved one, they they want to get into detox. They want to get into treatment. Can you talk a little bit about your concerns there? Like there, there's waiting. There's waiting times there. Correct?
3: Yeah, and and so just to be clear, uh, investment in our addiction treatment system is absolutely necessary, but it will still only be one part of a comprehensive response to, to this crisis, um, because it it does affect people um, of. of, of who who use regularly, who's used intermittently? Uh, you know, it does touch such a broad, uh, a broad group of, of 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 people. But speaking about our system itself, it's very clear that that our system, um, as it's as it's currently operating, just does not have the capacity to handle the amount of the amount of of, of damage that we're seeing, the the volume of patients that we're seeing. Um, you know, I work at St. Paul's Hospital in, in downtown Vancouver. I'm, I'm certainly on the forefront of, of of the crisis itself, but also probably the most resourced hospital in the province as far as our ability to deal with this. I see patients every day who are asking me if they can get into detox, and I'm putting them on a two or three or four week wait list to, to do that. I'm seeing patients every day who are asking me to go to an, a bed-based treatment program, uh, and I'm putting them on a three or four or five month wait list to do that. Um, so, our, our treatment system is is simply not accessible right now in in, the, in in as timely a fashion as it needs to be. That is an eternity for somebody who's continuing to use drugs every day and put them and and who's assuming just this enormous amount of risk every single time that they do.
0: Have you, have you, are you aware of people who have died while waiting? Constantly, constantly. Yeah. Let me ask you about. Detox. When you talk about detox and and the weight the weight there for detox, can can you define that? Like, what is detox for yeah. anyone for someone who doesn't know what that is?
3: So so the the the, the flow through our system um, um, for somebody who was coming to see me and seeking help with with substance use. Um, there's a variety of different directions that they might go depending on what their their needs and goals and resources are. Um, for some. I will see them as, a, as an outpatient, I'll see them in clinic and start them in medications and adjust those medications over time and, and help them achieve a level of stability over time. But it doesn't happen overnight. And so yeah. it, it, takes, it, take, it can take days, weeks or even months to get somebody to a stable place, um, uh, seeing them in clinic. And it's very critical that we're investing in all of those harm reduction services to help keep them safe during that time. For others who um, maybe have a have a, a more complexity to their to their situation, um, I can advocate for them, or we can put them on a list for a, for a detox uh, facility. There are there are two medical detox facilities in the Lower Mainland, and that would be a facility that they can go and, and stay at for a week or two weeks um, to get put on the appropriate medications or to or to have their withdrawal symptoms managed. But it's still a short term. A short-term stay. It's 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 while right. while well, well going through an acute an acute stabilization process, um, or a or or withdrawal management process, oftentimes patients will then want to transition from a detox program to an actual bed-based addiction treatment program, which they may stay at for three months or more. But the gap between detox and those programs may be months. So they'll go to detox. Right. Well, they'll stabilize and then they'll be um, discharged back into whatever kind of environment they were coming from, which is often quite a chaotic one, and told to wait three or four months for a treatment bed. That is unrealistic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you ta- you've described like a number of gaps there. So you're talking like a few weeks to wait to get into the initial <clears throat> detox process. And then if someone wants to go into a residential bed, you know, like a bed-based treatment, as you described, that will be a a much longer program now you're talking several more months of waiting so there's multiple sort of gaps of waiting it sounds like is that fair to say
3: there there are there are multiple gaps between between these different um treatment settings uh, and there's also a real lack of coordination of movement between those settings, so um, it it doesn't uh, it, a lot of a lot of the effort in navigating the system is downloaded onto an indiv- individual themselves. It's not there's not fluid transitions. There's no coordination between these programs around the province, at least not a not a centralized consistent one. Uh, so so not only are there a number of gaps in terms of wait lists, but it also it, it can be a very difficult system to navigate, and the type of care that you're receiving in different places at different times is also not 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 particularly standardized so there's many many areas to focus on um when we're talking about trying to improve the the quality and accessibility uh, of our of our addiction treatment system
0: because we continue my discussion with dr paxton bach ubc addictions doctor saint paul's hospital bc center on substance use and we were talking before the break about some of the gaps and wait times for people who are looking for addiction treatment. I want to play a clip here of Lisa LaPointe. Now this is British Columbia's chief coroner and this is the coroner speaking at her news conference this week about the the staggering number of overdose deaths in our province last year and here's how she described the current system we have for treatment and some of the concerns that she has. Have a listen to this.
5: There is still no provincial framework for regulation and reporting uh, on outcomes so we don't actually know across the province where those beds are we don't actually know what it means when a bed is funded how many people does that help what are the outcomes for those people
0: like when I listen to that that comment dr. Bach when she says we don't we don't have information on the outcomes of the people going through these systems we don't know where the beds are we don't know how the beds are funded how is that possible why does that we've got this unbelievable crisis going on and you've got the chief coroner think she doesn't know some of this basic information on our our system what are we to make of this
3: it's really quite shocking uh, isn't it um... and you know, I know lots of people who work at these various treatment centers, and I know many of them are working hard and doing their best in their own individual silos. But there is no, there's, there's, there's nothing that we could even begin to describe as, 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 as really a system of coordination between any of these um, facilities. And, and this isn't new. This was the, the, the um, corner death review panel from 2018 came out with it. One of its, one of its key recommendations was to ensure that, that, um, that provincial treatment services provide evidence-based quality care and that their outcomes are monitored and evaluated. And neither of those things have come to pass. Um, It's really, uh, it's a pretty strong indictment of the system that we, that we just don't know what happens within any of these um, institutions. And, and we don't have any outcomes of what's happening when, when people are leaving them. Um, So not only, as I mentioned earlier, is accessibility a huge issue, um, but, but um, the quality of care, the level of regulation, and our, our ability to evaluate that is also sorely lacking.
0: Yeah, I find that quite shocking, given the, the scale of the crisis we're facing here and the numbers of people of dying and who are dying, and it's been going on for years that we still have the, these these gaps. Like I, why like why is that? Why hasn't it? Why hasn't this been fixed?
3: I mean, it, it that's a, that is a, a great question. Um, I, I uh, it, it, this is not a new recommendation, but I do appreciate that it has uh, it has come to light again following the most recent announcement, yeah. um, and is something that I, I hope pressure continues to be applied because. Um, really, we talk a lot about an addiction about whether our addiction treatment system in BC uh, is meeting the need. and I, I have a really hard time even uh, using the word system because that implies a certain level of coordination and communication, which we're just not really seeing.
0: What's it like for you? We just got, sadly, we just got a few minutes left here, but for a guy like yourself who is on the front lines of this crisis and you have people coming to you practically on a daily basis looking, looking for help. And you've got to tell them about these wait lists. And like you, you described earlier, people dying while they're waiting.
3: What is... It's, go ahead. It's incredibly frustrating. It's heartbreaking because um, people yeah. will come and, and, and they'll tell you what they need and they'll ask for it. And I will, and I will tell them that's fantastic. I'm so happy that, that, um, that you come to see me and I'm glad to help you with that. But we're looking at a four month wait list and and just to see them look at somebody on somebody's face when you give them that news for the first time it is heartbreaking and 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 it de- it deserves it, you don't deserve that and so yeah. you know when when we're having conversations as as have come up in the in the media or in the news recently about things like mandatory treatments you can You can appreciate how absurd that conversation is to me for a number of reasons, but, but chief among them being that I can't provide voluntary treatment to my patients to those who are who are coming to seek it and, and are begging me for it. so for us to be talking about about other much more dramatic um, interventions, like forcing people into treatment, which I have many issues with um, um, already, uh, in the absence of having accessible Voluntary treatment at people's fingertips already. It, it. I just feel like um, we're not, we're not having the right conversations.
0: Right. We just have one minute left here. Can, can the treatment work? Like, have you seen people turn their lives around and, and, and get off drugs? <clears throat>
3: uh, a- absolutely, it can. But again, this, yeah. this does put that in perspective. Is that an addiction treatment system is one part of a comprehensive puzzle, um, and we need to do much more as far as harm reduction, as far as treatment uh, and prevention goes. Um, this is it, it, An addiction treatment can be highly effective, but if somebody goes through treatment and spends three months of facility, again, to be discharged from there back to an unstable housing situation in the downtown east side, I'm much less optimistic about their chances than if they're able to actually get housing and be supported and, and, and have people work with them proactively over time to help address some of the fundamental reasons that they use substances to begin with.
0: It's been great to have you here. And I I think the, the points you're raising are super important. And it's something we want to continue to focus on. Thank you for everything you're doing here to help people. And I appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks. All right. Here we go now with the epidemic of academic cheating at colleges and universities. And we're not just talking about sneaking a cheat sheet into your test or copying your friend's homework. We're talking high tech now. Now, a lot of people have heard about chat GPT. This is the artificial intelligence computer program that can write online student tests or a custom essay can churn out in just a few uh, matters of minutes. And this software right now is the talk of university and college campuses and high schools around. North America. But there's lots more types of cheating going on in academic circles. i got Sarah Eaton standing by, one of Canada's leading experts on this topic. First here, have a listen to this report from CNN on ChatGPT.
5: Educators across the country are raising the alarm over a new technology that is making it easier to cheat. It's called ChatGPT. It's a chatbot that runs on artificial intelligence, and it can do pretty much anything you tell it to do, from solving a complex math problem to writing essays on nearly any topic.
0: It's really a new form of an old problem where students would pay somebody or get somebody to write their paper for them, say an essay farmer, a friend who's taken a course before. This is like that, only it's instantaneous and free. Okay, well, maybe it won't be free for too much longer. Chat GPT now talking about bringing out a pay version of this, cost $20 a month to subscribe to it. I I suspect they, they probably will do some big business here. Guess what? Cheating is big business. There's a lot of it going on, and it's not just using programs like this. We're talking about fake credentials, phony degrees. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Sarah Eaton, one of Canada's leading experts in academic integrity, University of Calgary. Her new book, Fake Degrees and Fraudulent Credentials in Higher Education. Sarah Eaton, thanks for coming on today.
5: Thanks so much for the invitation to join you.
0: You, you bet. Okay. Before we get, I'm really interested in this, uh, fake degrees and credentials, but let me, let me get your take first on the latest on chat GPT. We've talked about this before and boy, this story has taken off. I mean, you just Google some of the news coverage on this, this computer program around the world, how this thing has taken off. What are you hearing in, in your circles here about the concerns around this?
5: Yeah, I mean, we know that ChatGPT came out around November of last year. There were artificial intelligence tools before that. So, you know, educators with their fingers on the pulse know that this, this didn't come as a surprise. We were anticipating this. What we weren't anticipating was how quickly it was going to change education at every level uh, and how quick it was going to become available to, to the public. So you're right. I mean, this is the talk of the town everywhere.
0: Yeah, and how hard is it to catch uh, something like this, like if a kid has turned in an essay that's been written by an artificial intelligence program, are there counter programs that teachers can use to catch it?
5: It's it's interesting you ask that because almost every week it seems like new tools are becoming uh, coming out to detect AI-written tools. So yeah. we've got, almost got like a, a circular thing going on where we've got AI apps to write it and AI apps to detect the writing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's like an arms race, right? You know?
5: Pretty much. Yeah. And and as you said, you know, uh, the tools are going to become commercialized and then so will the detection tools.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like commercialized is, I think, is very interesting in this news this week that Chat GPT could bring out like this paid version of the of the program, because the book that that you have been that, that has come out that you're involved with here describes just how big sort of the world of this can be in terms of big money like when we talk so let's talk a little bit about that like fake credentials phony degrees well, let's talk about university degrees like i've heard this uh, a degree mill or a diploma mill or is it what is that you can just buy a university degree
5: yeah i mean there's different terms used for for different kinds of things there's there's fake universities out there that exist only on the internet that don't have any classrooms. They might have, might have a post office box. There's, there's that kind of thing. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, predatory schools where they'll, they'll have some kind of classroom or meeting room and they trick, trick people into thinking that they're actually taking a program, but they're not really. And then there's places online where you can just buy outright fake parchments.
0: Okay, you just buy. Buy a degree. Like, how much does it cost to buy a fake university degree?
5: Yeah, you know, we've we've it, our research into this. The fake diplomas, you know, um, bogus diplomas, can range anywhere from about two hundred dollars up to about twenty five thousand U.S. dollars.
0: Whoa, whoa! What do you get for twenty five thousand?
5: You know, you might get a Ph.D., you might get <laughs> an M.D., you might get. You know, it's probably some higher level professional degree that will get you a big paying job.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is why people will do this, right? Like if they can, if they can leverage this to into a career, but don't you, can't universities catch this stuff? Like if you, if you show up at a university in Canada and you present them with some phony degree, wouldn't they know immediately?
5: Well, um, I mean, we have better and better tech in Canada to detect this kind of thing. And now we've got things like called official transcripts. So one school has got to send another school a transcript. But in some cases, some things slip through. So we did a little survey, right? And we asked, you know, people in registrar offices across Canadian colleges and universities uh, how confident are you to detect fake credentials, how much training do you get, um, and what came back pretty much surprised us. It was a small-scale survey, I'll be the first to admit that, but by and large, what we heard was the majority of folks who will work in our registrar's offices are fairly overworked, and they don't get too much training in how to detect fraudulent credentials we have high levels of trust in this country, and we trust sort of the systems that we have in place for transferring so-called official oh. transcripts. But, yeah, it's pretty troubling. I was actually surprised. You know you know me, I, I study misconduct. We've chatted before. This yeah. blew my mind when we started looking into this.
0: Really? So this is it bigger than you thought?
5: Yeah. I mean, when we we were starting to work on this book, so this is an edited book, different chapters, i got to tell you, we learned a whole lot from uh, an FBI special agent who's retired, his name's Alan Zell. He's dedicated more than 40 years to looking into fake degrees and diploma mills, and, and we learned how big this industry is. Right, that it's you know about 21 billion dollars US is the valuation of this industry. It's massive.
0: Wow, 21 billion dollars! Like this is like this is big money. There's big bucks on the line here. But like you said. Like if someone can buy one of these fake diplomas or a fake degree and somehow parlay that into a, a high-paying job, that's why people are doing it. It must be tempting for people to do it if they can get they can make money doing it, right?
5: Well, sure. In, in an economy where there's not enough jobs, right, and you need a degree to get a job or you need a better degree to get a better job, then then it kind of just perpetuates the whole thing. And we have fairly compelling evidence to show that the market for fake degrees has increased a lot. Since you know the last big market crash around 2014,
0: right? Speaking to Sarah Eaton from the University of Calgary, her new book "Fake Degrees and Fraudulent Credentials in Higher Education." What about um, your book goes into some ed- admissions admissions cheating? Right, like what what is that? Is it like cheating your way into a a university?
5: yeah I mean, there's different ways this can happen. We're talking about um you know fake uh, admissions letters, whether that's um, somebody you hire somebody to write your admissions essay for you. that's a service that these companies can offer, or somebody also writes a fake recommendation letter for you. There's all kinds of different ways that admissions fraud can happen.
0: Mm-hmm. What about um athletic scholarships? like there's a, there was a tremendous uh Netflix series I watched recently on the U.S. college admission scandal where, where people are buying their way into into colleges and a lot of it was through fake like fake athletics right like people who get accepted into uh athletic programs when they're not really athletes is that kind of stuff going in Canada at all
5: you know I think the U.S. is a little different in that way we don't have these massive athletic scholarships that they have in the U.S. So I think here in Canada, it's a little bit more measured than in the U.S., but you're right, that Operation Varsity Blues, it was called. That was quite a scandal.
0: Yeah, it really was. Okay, we're talking about cheating in college and universities, going really high tech. It's bigger than you realize, I think. Sarah Eaton is my guest, University of Calgary. The new book, Fake Degrees and Fraudulent Credentials in Higher Education. Yeah, when you talk about a $21 billion U.S. industry and, like, Phony diplomas, fake degrees, fake credentials. I mean, we're talking we're talking big bucks here, and I imagine international, right? This goes across, you know, obviously not just in our own country, but in a, a lot of countries are experiencing the same thing. Would you say?
5: Yeah, I mean, we know that this is a worldwide, global industry. We know that one of the the major sellers for these fake degrees is a company out of Pakistan that they're worth tens of billions of dollars, um, and we know that this is it's basically. It's organized crime is what it yeah. is. We know that some of the companies, including this one I mentioned out of Pakistan, um, they will blackmail people for more money. So you buy a degree and then they come back and say, yeah, you need to pay us some more money so we don't tell your employer or embarrass you publicly. So there's a lot of stuff behind this that, that's in the book, right? It's like it's like reading a Tom Clancy novel, to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was in high school and there used to be a, a classified ad in the back pages of uh, Rolling Stone magazine and it was, uh, mail in and buy an essay. So if you need an essay written for your final, just, uh, send the check to this address and they'll send you back a a custom written essay, which is something Mm -hmm. I never, I never did. But, uh, you know, that's the, that was old school, right? Like now it's more online, but that still goes on, right? Like you can still buy custom, custom written essays online. Oh,
5: yeah. Oh, yeah. you! I mean, you can buy anything you want online, whether it's an sure. essay, a PhD thesis, or just bypass it all and get the get the degree. Um, you can buy any kind of academic document on the internet.
0: Yeah, because I think a lot of people would think about, well, you know, it, there may be some cheating in high school. I remember one time when I was when I was in high school. Uh, I, I'll, I'll make a little confession here that something I did so. I was in my history class and I was late on an essay and my buddy, he was, um, he was really smart. He had got his, he always got great marks. His essay, of course, was on time. And I asked him, can I borrow your essay and look at it just to help me with my own essay? And he said, okay. And then I wrote my, I kind of cribbed his essay to write mine and I figured I'd change it enough so the teacher wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. She's not that she wasn't that foolish like she knew right away and she fo- she called us both into the room into her classroom asked me what the deal was and brought us in separately and I said well you know she said how come your essay looks like Bruce's essay and I said well he helped me I kind of lied and then she gave me a big fat 0
3: and then she and then she
0: called she called him in and gave him a 0 too and I was so, I felt so bad. I had done this to my friend and to myself too. And it was one of the most embarrassing things I'd gone through, like with a teacher. And, uh, you know, I learned my lesson from something like that, you know, but that's like, that's like old school. Like this stuff that you're describing, like buying a, buying a PhD thesis where you can buy a, a, a total, a thesis and get a PhD with it.
5: Hmm. I mean, whether or not that would pass your PhD examination is another question. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff available on online, and and what you describe, honestly, that that still happens. That's kind of that's low, you know, um, low scale kind of cheating. What I mean, yeah. what we found is the is a massive global industry. It's like it's like the underworld of higher education.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about um the uh, Mary-, Mary Ellen Turpel Lafond the controversy here with allegations about her in- indigenous uh, identity and we've seen the fallout now from this investigation there's like an investigative story done by the CBC on her I- her indigenous identity we see Canadian universities returning returning degrees she was let go by UBC like without commenting sp- specifically on her case because you know She's put out a statement still claiming Indigenous identity, but does that go on in Canada? Is there like fake people fraudulently claiming Indigenous identity to get ahead in academics?
5: I mean, I can, only speak, uh, I can only speak broadly on this. Uh, that, that's, um, Yeah, my area is more on the academic side of things. Um, and we do know that there's all kinds of misrepresentation that happens, whether it's one's identity or one's credentials. You know, in, in our book, we talk about something called the long con or the long fraud, where people um, will misrepresent themselves habitually and over years and years and years, and the longer they do it, the harder it becomes to come clean afterwards. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that's what happened in this case. I'm simply right. saying that the phenomenon of the long con exists.
0: Okay, we just got a minute and a half left here, so we've covered a lot of ground on on how widespread this cheating stuff is and how sophisticated it's become. What what do institutions, colleges, universities in Canada need to do to improve this, or is is it possible to is it you can't? I don't think you can stop all of it, but can you make it better?
5: Yeah, I mean, we do have a great chapter in the book about some emerging technologies. You talked a little bit about that arms race earlier, but there's new tech coming in Canada. It's actually already here. Some universities are already using it to use blockchain for credential verification and high-tech systems to ensure that when people are applying to programs, that they actually hold the credentials that they're applying with. So that's happening in Canada. In fact, I think Canada is way ahead of some other countries. So I think we're actually doing well compared to some other countries.
0: Okay, so using blockchain in order to, that brings a greater degree of security to make sure that the people are really claiming, the credentials they're claiming are real and legit.
5: Exactly, exactly.
0: Okay. All right. It's always great to have you on to talk about this topic. Thank you for coming on today.
5: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: Talk about those rising interest rates now. The Bank of Canada, their latest interest rate hike recently. Uh, The Bottom-line interest rate in Canada now 4.5% is the central bank rate. So it was another rate hike. Why does the government keep, or why does the central bank keep raising interest rates? Let's have a listen to Tiff Macklem here, the Governor of the Bank of Canada. He explains why they keep doing this. Have a listen to this.
4: This will relieve domestic price pressures and inflation will come down. The adjustment will not be easy, but restoring price stability is the most important thing we can do to improve the economic and financial well-being of Canadians.
0: Okay, so the last rate hike, maybe, hopefully that's the last one for a while, seems to be some hints that maybe they cool off these interest rate hikes now. Especially me, inflation's cooled off a, a little bit, but man, oh man, if you got a variable rate mortgage, This one hits you in the wallet. What if you've got a home equity line of credit with a variable interest rate? Yeah, hits you too. Let's discuss now with my guest, John Wright, Executive Vice President, Maru Public Opinion. They've just done a survey on this. Hey, John, thanks for coming on today. Mike, it's my pleasure. Okay, let's talk about your latest survey on this. What did you find out? How how are these rising interest rates hitting Canadians right now?
4: Well, for about 35% of those people who own a home, it's not very pleasant. To put this in context, the Bank of Canada is trying to raise rates at an exponentially fast uh, rate, almost like a hockey stick, you know, um, in terms of how fast they've risen over the last year or so. And they're trying to bring inflation down to 2%. So that's taking it from now, which is about 6.8%, 6.5% in that range and bringing it all the way down. Their view is that if they hike up interest rates, what it's going to do is have everybody pull their horns in, take money out of the marketplace, bring the price of housing down and a whole series of other things, potentially, uh, then slow down in spending, which means that the economy will slow, and then everything over the next number of months will get in place. But it's going to affect um, people who own homes the most, and that's about 35% who think that at the current rate, overall they can kind of ride it out for about 9.7 months but if you've got a line of credit or a variable mortgage at this rate at 4.5 it's going to be about 8 uh about 8 months
0: about about 8 months before what you you can't afford the payments or or what
4: yeah before you have to do something significant i mean we yeah. know that in the short term I mean, we've got, you know, maybe 8% of those people who have houses uh, in that 35% who are going to have to make drastic changes right away. But as this continues, you're loading up credit cards. You are, you know, uh, not making as much money um, in terms of the cost of living as you were before. It's inching up. And we have 1.1 million people across this country who own homes who are going to come up for refinancing in the spring so everybody's kind of holding their breath but that's going to be a trigger point for the economy particularly in the housing market
0: yeah your survey finds obviously that for someone who's got a mortgage with a, a variable interest rate there obviously it hits them directly if you've got a home equity line of credit same thing variable rate what about people who don't have a mortgage like you mentioned credit card bills i mean once these once that central bank rate starts going up the credit card companies start hiking their rates too don't they
4: yeah, they do. And so when you take a look across the board, it's just Canadians overall. You have 11% who say that the raising of interest rates overall have caused a drastic financial adjustment in their lifestyle. You've got then a 22% who say it's caused pretty serious pressures, and they're just doing everything they can to get by. Um, you know, cause anxiety, but it's manageable for 38%. And the last one is about. Three and ten twenty nine percent for which it's had really no impact at all, so pretty much seventy percent of the people in this country have been affected by the rise in interest rates,
0: yeah, and for people who like you' mentioning that some people can figure they can ride it out at least for a while, maybe it starts to kick in if interest rates remain high. What about for people who've had to make a drastic change in their lifestyle, a drastic adjustment in their, in their finances or their spending. What did you find out there?
4: Well, we found out, again, tying it into um, those people who own the homes and they're affected the most, that those drastic lifestyle changes will probably mean for many of them, um, as you asked earlier, what, what do they do about this? It's, it's either that they change residences, meaning that they sell, which could be at a loss, because they went into the market at a high level. It could mean that they make refinancing arrangements. As I said, that's 1.1 million people who probably locked in some years ago and are now entering the marketplace where it's considerably higher for uh, for payments. Or what they do is they continue to either, A, cut back on things or load up on debt on the others. You know, it's interesting, Mike. I was s- sitting last night and got a, a A text message from my financial institution. I won't name who they were, but up on the screen popped uh, a pre approval to increase my credit card by $4,000. And I thought, I haven't done anything to warrant this, but given what I've just produced here, there will be a lot of people who will become even more indebted because they'll take advantage of this. They'll say, Look, I can't afford the 300 extra dollars it's coming, you know, due on the mortgage. So what I'll have to do is load up. So sure, I'll take that, you know, $4,000 and sure, I'll, you know, ride it out for a few more months, except that those credit cards in some cases are between 25 and 30% interest rates on on their own. So I think that's what people are doing who are in those situations.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a scary proposition there. You start loading up on that or using a home, uh, one of those, payday loans or something, or loading up on a credit card. Man, oh man, some of those interest rates are absolutely usurious. That's that's brutal. You got to be super careful on this. What about for people who have to make an even more drastic decision to even sell their home? Like if they've got into a large investment on a home, properties, th- those interest rates are going up, their mortgage payments are going up. Did Did you find out, John, in the in the survey that some people are having to make the very difficult decision to just get out like sell their house
4: yeah um again when we came back to that question asking whether or not they were going to have to make a a a change to their residence in a shorter period of time because of the rates we found that in a short period of time it's about eight percent of those people who own homes so it's uh, i mean who owe something so you've got 30 let's break this down you've got 35 percent of people who have got um, who have indicated out of the 65% who own homes that they're in trouble. And on that yeah. 35, roughly 1 in 10 are right now in the process of making the move to sell their residence, uh, or in fact, make a refinancing arrangement to cover it. If they can't, they're going to have to make arrangements okay. to move out.
0: Okay. A grim picture. Hopefully these interest rate hikes slow down now. Maybe that's hopefully that's the last one for a while. Start going the other direction. John, thanks for coming on.